All right, children, sit down, be quiet. Take the chewing gum out of your mouth and put it under your chair. <laughs> okay, I hope you can hear me. I'm still deaf in this ear and I can't hear you very well, but that's all right. We're not, we're not doing it that way. Uh, we have a few new folk uh, with us, so look around. If there's a face you don't recognize, uh, Somewhere along the line, uh, put out your hand, shake hands, ask who they are, welcome them. It's, it's nice to have you here. Uh, we've tried to give you a handout. You actually got two pages this time. If you didn't get them, uh, Susan has some and put your hand up and we'll get you some. Uh, we didn't finish uh, the Tower or the Temple of Babel last week and we'll finish that and then we'll do Abraham I'm looking forward especially to next week. Uh, this is not a bad week, but next week should be a very interesting week. Next week, I'm going to ask you to read from Genesis 12 to Genesis 20, which is essentially the Abraham story. It's a little short. And ask yourself, where do you see justice and righteousness? Are you listening? Are you with me? Where do you see justice and righteousness? If you're the sort of person who underlines your Bible, maybe you'd like to do that. Of course, if you have an electronic Bible, that maybe that won't work. I don't know. Uh, and then ask yourself, what are the stories in between those events doing? And, uh, and I'm going to try to uh, do a literary analysis of that section and ask, what did the author of Genesis think he was doing? What was he trying to communicate? And I think, I think there's a theme there. Uh, I'm going to suggest as justice and righteousness. So look for it. It's a bit hidden in some of our translations where they use the word integrity or innocence. But that's the standard Hebrew term for righteousness, which for whatever reason they have translated innocent or integrity. But, but many other cases, you actually have the word righteous or you have the word just. Once you have them paired together, which is an extremely important one. But let's look at those. Uh, more or less, my argument that the Bible is a story about justice, I, I wouldn't say it necessarily stands or falls with this past set, set of texts. But if it's not there, I'm in trouble. <laughs> right. So I'm going to find it <laughs> one way or the other. Uh, and I invite you to look and see if I'm really finding it, all right? You write it in, that's right, but yeah, you could write it in. I'll send you a note and remind you of all these things, so if you didn't get that, that's all right. But I just want to say, uh, next week's going to be very critical, I, and I hope we can cover the whole thing. I'm going to try to cover as much as we can today. Let's have a prayer together. Lord, we thank you for the service that we've just come from, and for the singing, for the prayers for the fellowship, for the choir, especially for the preaching of the word. And we pray now, Lord, that you would uh, help us to digest that peace. And now we also pray that your spirit, who gives us help as we study, that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word. Lord, we want to be faithful to your word and to follow you in paths of righteousness for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, I'm going to review, uh, because I'm a teacher, and so teachers get to review. Uh, chapter 1, God created a, anybody remember the adjectives here? A creative and naked, but I flip that over to be just open right. Now, uh, that probably seems to you a little flimsy, <laughs> and it is, all right? Uh, I'm almost by myself on that in the commentaries. I did quote Walkie, who at least embraces open. He doesn't quite go to justice, but he's at least got it open, and I'm happy with that. Uh, but I take some consolation. Is it somebody else is called righteous on my board? Who's that? Who up here gets the label righteous? Oh, thank you. Yeah, oh, goodness. Yeah, he's righteous. And he's blameless. And he walks with God. That's uh, Greek for God, all right? It's a shorthand. So I take that as, as something of a confirmation because Noah is sort of the second Adam, isn't he? All, all the rest of the world comes from Noah in the same way they came from Adam. And so, now, many commentators see that. And so they would argue that Noah is the second Adam. If that's true, then you have the first Adam and Eve, and, and they're naked. And then you have the second Adam and Eve, uh, which is, well, not Eve, but Adam, which is Noah. And both of these are righteous. And so, you know, I mean, I, this one's naked. But I, I take this to be something of a confirmation that we're not entirely off the path when we say that open, naked means righteousness. Now, you know, I'm not going to bet my life on that, but I, you know, I think it may work. Now, the first chapter is the six days of creation. The punchline here is we're made in the image of God, which is not repeated in the Old Testament. Now, if I was writing the Old Testament, I'd write it differently. So, you know, but I didn't write that. I mean, I think, I think, boy, that's a great idea. I can really go places with that. Now, Paul picks it up and goes places. But the scriptures of Israel don't do that. But the be fruitful and multiply, which is a function of creativity, We'll see it today, and we'll see it next week, perhaps. But that gets picked up and woven into the promise to Abraham. But it's also picked up and woven into the renewal of the covenant to, to Noah. So after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, and part of that covenant, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, whether you take that as a blessing or you take it as commandment, or you think it's a bit ambiguous and you take it both ways, which I think maybe is the right way to do it, uh, you have that up front. Be fruitful and multiply and increase. Uh, I take that to be programmatic. That is, it's a text that lays out program. It's in a critical literary place. It's the climax of the creation of humans. And prob probably the most important thing in identifying programmatic text is it's frequently repeated. So you'll find at least 15, 20 cases as it ripples through 
the scriptures of Israel. And I suspect that when you see fruitful and multiply and increase, even in the book of Acts, that it may have echoes of this. It, it, scholars are pretty happy to understand that signs and wonders in the book of Acts is a direct quotation from the Greek Old Testament about the signs and wonders of the plagues. That those words are exact words that are repeated in the exact order, and so people do see that carryover. If that's the case, perhaps uh, be fruitful and increase and multiply, uh, perhaps carries over in that same way. Chapter 2, we have the creation of Adam and Eve, and I've, we've already worked on this. They're naked, not just with each other, but with God. They're open with God, they're right with God, and they're right also with the earth, with the environment. And then comes to God judged, and so here's a very uh, justice term. The word judge doesn't actually occur in the text, but you can see God judging. And at the beginning, perhaps you don't remember this, so I'm going to repeat it because it's different, is that working with biblical theology in this way, reading within the world the text, we pay attention to events as much as concept. And in fact, uh, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, you would have an event happen, something happened, and then you would have the concept interpret the event. Now, you could have the concept come first and interpret the event sort of prophetically, but often it's not. You'll have what happens, and then the concept will interpret it. So I, th I think that perhaps what we have here is something uh, like that, that you see this. These are events, and, and later we'll be told that these are judgments. So God judges the world. There are three sections to this. Uh, the disobedience of Adam and Eve. They didn't what? They didn't fall. Yeah, mean it. Now, St. Augustine said they did, and St. Augustine's always right. But Paul didn't say that, and Genesis certainly doesn't know that. And we're doing biblical theology. We're reading within the world of the text, the vocabulary of the text, what the text lays out for us, and that's, that's our building materials as best we can. And so I would say Adam and Eve disobeyed, and the result of the disobedience is the first thing they did was they hid from each other. So society takes the first blow. Now, given the evangelical Christianity in which I was raised and of which I'm greatly appreciative, I would not write it that way. I would say the first thing that broke was a relation with God. Well, it did break in the very next verse, but it starts with society. And I take that as probably indicative of what the story is about, that God's trying to build a great, creative, just an open society. And so I'm, I'm taking that society point of view and, and that it's society that breaks and then the relation with God that breaks and there's pain for the woman in her womb, there's pain for the man in the land, it's fertility that, that is hurt. And of course, all the gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East are gods and goddesses of fertility, yeah. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you might even see some on television today, right? You take two of these, buy three of those, drive one of these, wear this, and you will 
Yeah, okay, you don't need me to tell you. All right, so they disobey. Cain and Abel, this is clearly in a case of oppression. He squeezes his brother. He squeezes the life out of him. He's an oppressor, all right? And I'm deliberately using that jargon because you're going to see a lot of oppression, and we only need to go to the next chapter to get it. So here you have a murder. Now, in both cases, uh, God gives him some clothes, exactly what we're to make of that. Uh, I don't know. uh, If you say he kills animals and sheds blood, sure. But the text doesn't say that. So I'm not going to read it into the text. I'm reading out of the text, not into the text. If you find that later, that's fine. But it's not here right now. Uh, Cain and Abel, uh, Cain says, hey, they're going to get me. So Cain gets a mark. We don't know what the mark is. He gets driven away at some distance. He doesn't die. God doesn't kill him for this murder. Does that bother you? That bothers me a little bit. I mean, the law is going to say pretty soon when we get to it that if you murder somebody, you stone them. And God doesn't stone this guy. He just sends him away and puts a mark on him and says he'll take care of him. I'm skipping Lamech, but he's also an oppressor. Uh, Noah, in the time of Noah, what are the two adjectives that are used to describe the people of Noah's time? They were, yeah, wicked, violent, corrupt. Yeah, I would take corrupt and wicked to be more or less the same, and violent. Uh, Violence runs all the way through this. Uh, I think the younger generation are are into violence in the sense of being concerned about it. I mean, we older people should be too, but I think the younger generation especially is into violence. Uh, I have a stack of books, maybe 15, 20, maybe 30 books on violence. Would you believe it? It's, it's been an explosion in the biblical world, uh, not just among liberals, but evangelicals are trying to figure this out. Some cover just one piece, some cover the whole thing. It's a justice question. Can you see that? And so I can't dodge it. I may not be able to explain it, but at least I can't dodge it. So when we get to that passage in Deuteronomy 7 where it says, go and kill all the Canaanites and show them no mercy... I mean, the best thing is just to expunge that. (laughs) You know, as evangelicals, we're stuck with the whole text, right? I mean, liberals can just mark out the bits they don't like. But if you're an evangelical, you've got to figure out what to do with them. Well, you could ignore them, but that's not very helpful. And, And if people are asking hard questions about our faith, one of the hard questions is about violence. Is Yahweh a God of violence? Well, it certainly looks like it. And and if you're paying attention to what's going on here, you're going to see that. I I will get my red pencil out now, my red pen, and say what's happening here is you have judgment. And the whole world is flooded, you have judgment. And then we're going to get the Tower of Babel, and of course, I'll draw my, since I got my red pen going, judgment. 
Does God judge people? He does. This is the opening text. And it covers somewhere between 4,000 and 4 at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, well, that's what Usher tells us. I mean, you know, all the way down to Abraham. We know Abraham is about 2,000. Now, uh, you know, plus or minus, I'm happy with a lot of pluses, but, but it covers a lot of time. It is selective, isn't it? And God's telling us in capital letters very loudly, there's something really wrong with us. Because this is us, isn't it? He said, well, it's them. Yeah, but we're part of them. And there's something really wrong with human beings. Now, if you don't start with that predicate, the rest of the story doesn't make very much sense because the rest of the story is predicated on this understanding of humans, that there's something really wrong with them. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 11. We left off here last time. And uh, this is the Tower of Babel, or as I will call it, and others also call it that. It's the Temple of Babel. Let me draw you a little diagram. Uh, not <laughs> I'm very good at this, but uh, I suggest you look it up on the internet. But there are ziggurats. I think there are about 30 or 40 ziggurats uh, mainly in Iraq, but other places also. And at the base of the ziggurat would be a temple. But the whole, the whole show is understood as a temple complex. Uh, at the top would be a flat place where there'd be a bed for a god, and we don't know exactly what went on up there. Uh, these are stairs. Do you see that? It's so that the god can descend to his temple, and there he would be offered uh, sacrifices of one kind or, or another. That's, that's pretty standard. This is the Tower of Babel. We call it a tower, but that's a secular reading of the text. All of the ancient world is traditional, is re religious. The way to get the flavor of this is to try to understand Islam. Who runs? Iran, Iraq, well, Iraq, I mean, it's the Ayatollah. But what is he? He's not an elected political official. He is the religious figure, and you dare not cross him. So he, he's the supreme figure, and, and his authority covers everything. All right? Now, as Americans, we just don't get that. I mean, that's not the way it works for us. We're, we're secular, and we separate out church from politics, or at least we're supposed to, and, and you know, these things are over here and we're over here. Uh, but in this sort of society, uh, the, the religion covers everything. Uh, and so we have the, the, we have the temple of Babel. Let me read the text with you, all right? You find chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language, and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And, you know, somewhere in Mesopotamia, uh, I don't think it's absolutely clear where it is. And they said to one another, come, let us make brick, because they didn't have stones. You got to go to Canaan to get the stones. They also made bricks in Egypt for the same reason. Come, let us make brick 
if they'd lived in Indiana, they would have had limestone, right? But they, they missed Indiana, so, you know, come let us make brick. They'd learn how to burn and make bricks. Burn them thoroughly, bake them, you know, and they put them together, uh, and they had brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. So they stuck the thing together. It's incredible, isn't it? How many people have actually visited a ziggurat? Okay, if you'll take a collection and send me, I'll go and tell you what it's like. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to sit at home and watch it on Google, right? I mean, if you type, it, type in ziggurat in Google, you'll get, you'll get lots of pictures. They're, they're all very interesting. Uh, the ziggurats, unlike the uh, pyramids, are solid. You know, the pyramids have inner chambers, but the ziggurats are solid. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and, I would say, temple. A tower is all right, but I think the real significance of it is that it's religious, and tower doesn't quite carry that punch for us. Uh, build ourselves a city and a temple with its top in the heavens. All right, it's a tall thing. It goes way up. And let us make a name for ourselves. Now, the commentators, you know, they're not quite sure what to say about this. I suspect it means identity, and that their identity was found in the gods because they're religious. So they built a religious place for the gods, and this was to be this is to be the place in which their identity was found. Now, now hold on to that because when we come to Abraham. You're going to hear this again with a very different spin on it. So uh, let us make a city with a temple with its top into the heavens uh, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be, and some translations will say scattered, won't they? Be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the temple which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. So the Lord's not happy about this. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This will get worse. Uh, apparently that's the way to understand what he's saying. Come, let us go down. You see the us. Mm -hmm. okay. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed or scattered them from there over the face of the earth and left off building the city. Now, how we're to understand it, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm inclined to think that they be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule it. If, if you don't fill the earth, how can you manage it? If you're going to be the gardener for the earth, you need to move out and take over the garden. But these people were building a city. Now, I don't think God's anti-city. Um, probably. <laughs> We'll come to that eventually. But, but apparently he wants his people to multiply, to be creative, to be fruitful, to move out, to take care of the land and the animals, and to do that. I mean, that's one way of reading it. I'm not sure it's the best way, but it's, it's a way at least. 
verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. You know, he moved them out, he scattered them, and they left off building the city, which I think was the point of the whole thing. Therefore, its name was called Babel or Babel. It's, it's a play on the word that means confused. You can see that in your footnote of the ESV. And later, but probably not at that time, it becomes Babylon. Uh, depending on the date you put on this, Babylon probably wasn't in existence at that point. But Babel, Babylon runs all the way through to Revelation 19, doesn't it? And the last thing to get knocked down is, is Babylon, <laughs> which is back in its old game of building cities, attracting things, doing the wrong thing, and God disperses it. Therefore, its name is called Babel or Babel or who what, whatever, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, I'm, I'm not absolutely confident in how we've read that text, how I've read that text, but but. At any rate, God's not happy, and there's judgment again. What's the big picture? 4,000 years, well, 2,000 years, depending on how you count this. Uh, 2,000 years, two events, three events. It's selective, isn't it? And he selected the three events that say in great big capital letters, there's something really wrong, corrupt, violent. Something's really gone wrong here. And I must do something about that. Now, with Adam and Eve uh, and with Cain and Abel, we had a bit of mercy shown in that for Adam and Eve, he gives them garments and gives them some protection. With Cain, uh, he puts a mark on him. There's some protection there. With Noah, <laughs> the mercy here is on Noah. Everybody else gets flooded out, all right? So there's a bit of mercy there. So we've got, I'm going to have to do this in a different color so you can see it and I can keep track of it. There's a bit of mercy here, and there's a bit of mercy here. But where's the mercy here? If, if we have a fairly stylized way of doing this, there ought to be, some mercy. You ought to have sin, judgment, mercy. Do you follow that? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Sin, judgment, mercy. Sin, judgment, mercy. Sin, judgment, ah, where'd the mercy go? And most people would say the mercy comes in Act 3, and that is God constructs a great and holy and just nation, which I take to be a society. The Hebrew word is goy, we get people, society, so it's used in different ways. But I think society is not a terrible understanding of that. Society including both land and people and some sort of governance and law to govern those people. Uh, that would be all right with me. I'm going to move the Tower of Babel out of here. Now, where's the mercy? 
I would suggest the mercy is in scene one. All right, now you need to move to the next page of notes, all right? Scene one are the pioneers. And they begin with Abraham and Sarah. And the mercy is in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God makes a covenant. Actually, covenant's not used until later. God issues a promise to Abraham. And the key word there, it re repeated, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, uh, go from the country and from your kinsmen, kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. All right, you can see where I'm getting my title. I'm lifting it out of the text. And I will bless you. I take that to be mercy, some form of mercy, a concrete good communicated. And make your name great. It's what the people at, at uh, Babel were trying to do, make themselves a, a name. And God says, well, now, Abraham, uh, you follow me and we're going to do this differently. But I'm, I am in the making of names great business, so I'll do that. So that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whosoever dishonors you, or a lot of translations say curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I start with Abraham. This is scene one. And there are going to be, I'm not quite sure how many scenes there are. I haven't stopped. I'm still working on this a bit. There used to be 12 scenes, but I've repented. I think there's seven now. But I won't know that for a few weeks, all right? So, you know. And, and the name of this scene is The Pioneers. Ha! Ah! He said, I thought it was the patriarchs. We changed the name. <laughs> I am not a, an, an ancient Near Eastern expert. I did do three weeks of Akkadian, but don't ask me a word. I, you know, I can see the wiggles on the blackboard, but I have no idea what they mean. Uh, and to be an expert in that field, you really need to do a lot of <laughs> language study. Uh, and, and work on the history of that period. It, it's not what I did. <laughs> if I had to do it over again, I'd certainly think about some of that because it's very helpful. A man named Walton, who was at Moody, he's moved to Wheaton and he's produced a spate of books on Genesis, knows his stuff. He's worked on this. He's specialized in it. And, and he's very useful to read. His commentary on Genesis is an excellent sort of commentary. I would read this against an ancient Near Eastern background where Abraham and Sarah are both prominent. Can I say that again? Abraham and Sarah are both prominent. Sarah asks some of the really difficult questions about justice. So does Abraham. And Sarah gets a lot of press. You can see her. Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Isaac has a wife, Rebecca, who really is the boss. We'll see that. And, and Jacob, he has four wives. All right? And Joseph, he finally gets a wife, doesn't he? An Egyptian wife. But uh, not all these women, but Sarah certainly, Rebecca definitely, uh, maybe Leah and Rachel. Uh, Bilhah and Zilpah don't play quite that role. But these are the women that populate Genesis. 
Now, I'm going to say something that I can't document, <laughs> you know, so put it down red ink or just don't put it out at all. I think that if you could read narratives in the ancient Near East, and I don't know that there are many, what you have in Mesopotamia are law codes, like Hammurabi. There are six or seven of them. Hammurabi's in the middle. Uh, but I, and, and there are a few uh, epics, Gilgamesh epic and so on, but there's nothing like the Old Testament a sustained narrative over thousands of years. I don't think there's anything like that in the ancient Near East during the literature. So Israel is very interested in narrative, in story, in rooting themselves in story and in history. And in that, they give a prominent place to women. And I think any ancient Near Easterner reading the text would absolutely be shocked and say to his servants, don't let my wife see this. <laughs> All right? It's, I think it's actually revolutionary. In the same way that Jesus went about with women who supplied his needs, that wasn't done. That just was no-no, but Jesus did it. Uh, if, when, you, when you read the narrative... Uh, women often come in as the heroes in this. We're going to come across Deborah, aren't we? And one of my heroes is Ruth. You'll, you'll see that when, when I get there. There, there are others, uh, not a few. And I think if we read it against that background, we'd have that. So instead of calling them patriarchs, and it is a patriarchal society. I certainly don't deny that. But I call them pioneers. Because they were asked to leave what? Leave home. Yeah, now, I'd like for us to really get a feel for that. So I'm going to work on it a little bit. Uh, there's not much text, but I'm going to squeeze it like a good orange for every drop. All right, sometimes you squeeze the oranges too hard. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Yeah, he's in Ur, he's in Mesopotamia, down, in, you know, down here, and he goes up to, to uh, Haran, and turns the corner and comes back down over the top of the Fertile Crescent. Uh, I didn't draw you a map. I'll send you a map if you need one. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now, it, uh, those are not exactly technical terms, but those are terms that any Hebrew reader would recognize. The country is this. The kindred is all those nieces and nephews and aunts and cousins that you meet three times a year at Jerusalem for the big feast. And if you're not careful, you can lose a boy on the way home and no one knows where he is because he's with all the cousins, right? And then you say, where is that boy? <laughs> and then you have uh, the house of the family, the Beth. Beth is house, of course. The Beth Av, the house of the father, the father's house. So it's a narrowing down. So he's saying, leave your country. Well, that's pretty hard. Leave your kindred, ooh, dear, that begins to pinch. Leave your father's house. Oh, that really is a pinch. Because their identity, unlike us, is found in country and extended kin and especially in extended family. All right? That's, the rest of the world uh, lives that way. So if you meet an African, you say, who are you? 
he, he never says, well, I graduated from Notre Dame, and then I went to Harvard, and I did my postdoc at San Francisco. This is the way we talk. I mean, I'm talking academic talk. But I've heard this at every conference I go to. You play these ping pong games called, who are you? And you drop your degrees around. And if you, you know, it's, it's a wonderful game to play if you like to play academic ping pong. I'm not very good at it myself. Uh, but if you live in a traditional society, the name dropping goes, you rehearse your ancestors. Africans, traditional Africans in Kenya, so I am told by my students, can rehearse their fathers for 10 generations back. How many of you can do it for 10 generations in your family? Hands up, let's see. All right, we got one. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, most of us don't have an idea beyond our great-grandmother. I mean, I, my uncle did some tracing, and I think he found that my ancestors were all criminals in York and escaped and got on a boat and came to America. So we don't talk about that. <laughs> we, 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 we've dropped that part of the ancestry. But, you know, you, you went back this way. The other thing you did is you said, I'm Joseph of... You identify with your place and you never leave it. There are people living today who have never gone outside their village. They live in mountainous areas. They speak distinct languages. They live in a, they live in a, you know, you go to New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, you can find these people. There are not many left. There are a few left in Africa, not many. But, but you identify yourself with your family and your, your place. So read this text with me with that traditional world in mind. Go from your country. Oh, really? And your kindred, oh, Lord, and your father's house. Must I? I'm going to lose all of my what? Yes. Going to lose all of my identity. And so it stands over against the ziggurat where these people were making their identity, and Abraham would have known about ziggurats. There's a verse at the end of Joshua that says, our father Abraham worshipped the gods beyond the river. All right? So he was a pagan. You say, Abraham was Jewish. Well, not for a while. <laughs> no, not until chapter 17. And then he ain't very Jewish. If you want to call him Israelite, you've got to wait till his grandson, right? And Jacob gets the name Israel, but after a while. And exactly when that name becomes the name of the group, is a little fuzzy. So if you say to Abraham, are you a Jew? He'd say, I come from Mesopotamia. I'm a Mesopotamian. There's a lot of unknowns here that I don't know quite how to chase. You'd like to know what language he spoke and what food he ate and what clothes he wore. We're just not told that, but we got enough text here to know that God is saying to him, leave your identity. Verse 2. Well, Lord, then what? I will make of you a great nation. <laughs> I mean, if you've read the story, and I know you have, does Abraham ever become a great nation during his lifetime? No, he doesn't, and he lives a long time. So, I mean, this is a bit whistling in the dark as far as Abraham's concerned. I will make you a great nation, huh? and I will bless you and make your name great. Really? Yeah. So that you will be a blessing. 
God is saying to him, leave your safe place, the place where you know who you are, and go to a land that you don't know, and I'm going to make somebody of you there, even though you've completely lost it here. Abraham's identity was up for grab. He was taking a risk. And I suggest to you that the work of God, the kingdom of God, the purposes of God do not move forward without risk-taking. And when you take a risk, sometimes people get hurt. Not that you intentionally hurt them, but as unintended consequences, people get hurt. While I was in Kenya last time, a missionary kid going home from Rift Valley Academy was crossing a river uh, in a dugout canoe. He fell out. The crocodiles ate him. Well, if his parents had stayed home and behaved themselves, that never would have happened. Hmm? I mean, they will take that sort of criticism. Yeah, I mean, it just comes with the turf. Yeah, you took a risk. Well, they would have, I don't know how they thought. I've never talked to that parents. But, but people take risk. The Joneses are taking a risk. Do you realize that? We need to pray for them. When I pray for them, <laughs> I mean, my own kids have been missionaries. My baby daughter was in Kiev last week for 10 days. And her first day there, they dropped bombs on her. Well, they didn't hit her. She was down in the basement because they had said to her, when you book into a motel, book in one with a bomb shelter. So she went down to the bomb shelter, and the bombs hit up above, and she didn't get hurt, all right? Now, she's not a missionary. She's going there with an NGO. But because she's a missionary kid, they send her to these places because she knows how to navigate. Are you with me? Yeah. And, and she's not doing kingdom work directly, but she's bringing health. That's what she does. She's in the health NGO. So she does a, she's taking a risk. And now I feel like my mom and dad. They used to drop bombs all the time in Manila. And my mom and dad thought we were blown to bits. I remember saying to my dad, I wrote him letters we never called, of course, write to my dad, the people setting off the bombs are on the other side of the city, and we've got sense enough not to go there. All right? Now, when we got caught in a riot in Kenya twice, I didn't write my dad and tell him about that. I just, I skipped that chapter. <laughs> dad doesn't need to know everything that, that happens to his boy. Why should he worry, huh? Abraham's taking a risk. He's left his identity. He's left his ability to probably be productive and to get ahead in life. But the Lord says, I'll make your name great. I'll make you a great nation. I will take care of you. Verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He moved up to Haran. Uh, and Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out, and they went to the land. And then verse 6, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Now, 
This is a repetition of, the, of a fragment of the promise. If you're going to make a great nation, you need to have people, you need to have land, and you need to have some sort of governance. Probably some sort of law and some sort of uh, governor. Uh, these are basic. And, and, and the promise to Abraham focuses on people and on land, but we'll, it'll come to this. And so the repetitions of this promise, which are many, and we won't do today, uh, pick uh, up various pieces. Chapter 15 and 17 are the ones that really amplify chapter 12. And we'll come to chapter 15 next week, and I'm going to work in detail with you on the passage that says Abraham, God was talking to Abraham about land and people, both key aspects, and Abraham says to the Lord, all this talk you've been giving me, we would call it the word of God, <laughs> all this talk you've been giving me, I believe it. And God's going to say to him, and I will work hard next week to defend this position, Abraham, you did the right thing. Hmm? Abraham, you did the right thing. Now, most translations don't read it that way. Most scholars don't read it that way because they read the Bible backwards. Paul quotes this passage three times and reads it in a different way. Now, before you get too anxious, James reads the same passage and reads it the way I do. So you've got a choice next week. Are you going to follow James? Are you going to follow Paul? <laughs> Make up your mind. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to read it within the world of the text and try to understand that. And 15.6 is one of those pivotal pieces, and it's right in the middle of the expansion. The other great expansion is chapter 17, and it starts off with a justice term. It says, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. It's the same word that we had back here about Noah. And so we're going to find that the marker for Abraham is the same as the marker for Noah, and I suggest the marker for Adam and Eve. That what's central in God's development of his people is justice. Huh? Okay. Uh, I guess we've covered enough of that. Uh, the calling of Abraham, we've talked about that and his identity, called to leave his social setting, we've talked about that. Social world of pioneers, we've talked about that. Now, <laughs> at the risk of being obnoxious, and I don't really want to be obnoxious, but, you know, that's what I am. I mean, I am what I am. So I'm going to suggest that Abraham was, and I'm going to choose this term deliberately, but I think it's correct academically, all right? Abraham was an immigrant, one of those pesky immigrants eating up all the grass. I mean, he had a big cattle and herds. And, and he's got a, a woman, and he's got all these kids, and he winds up with a small army, which turns out to be very effective in chapter 14. And here he comes. Now, he doesn't really own any land. Israel, starting with Abraham to Joshua, had 600 years of not owning any land. 
Can I say that again? From Abraham to Joseph is 200 years. They didn't have any land. From Joseph to Moses or Joshua is 400 years plus. So for 650 years, plus or minus, they were immigrantes. They were immigrants. They were foreigners. They were, in Hebrew, ger. Ah, the translations handle ger differently. I think a reasonable translation of ger is aliens. The ESV and other translations have used the word sojourner because it means to wonder and to sojourn. But I think sojourn doesn't have quite the bite as alien does, and I think immigrant has even more bite. Are you with me? So I'm, I'm being deliberate about that because one of the issues that the whole world faces, not just America, is mass immigration, right? Are you watching what's going on in the Mediterranean? Do you have any idea at all what's going on in Sudan? My goodness. I mean, do you know what's happening in Ukraine? You probably do. How many people are now immigrated out of Ukraine? Millions. Yeah. Immigration has been with us from the beginning. I have a wonderful map at home in my Atlas of Africa that shows the tribal immigrations from, from day one or so. And Kenya is blessed because all three of the great language groups in Africa, and there are thousands of languages, but they all belong to one of these three groups. All three language groups managed to immigrate to Kenya. Kenya is a linguistic zoo. I mean, you can find anything you like there. Oh, my. And the languages are, are quite diverse. So when I landed there as a missionary, I learned Tagalog in the Philippines. And when I, landed, I said, so what language do you speak? Well, I, I got 71 different answers. So I said, me, I'll speak English, <laughs> which is what everybody speaks. I mean, you know, Kikuyu is the big tribal language. But if you speak Kikuyu, the Luo won't like you. And, and if you speak Swahili, no one knows what you're saying because Swahili's a coastal language. So, I mean, and you can see languages and people, this was language and people, immigration has been with us for thousands of years. And if you know anything at all about history, and I don't know much of anything, but at least I know that in Africa, immig immigration, migration was the way of life. Then the Portuguese came. Hmm? And they built Fort Jesus, in which they kept their slaves. Uh, and then the English came. And then the Dutch came. Oh, you know these people. And then the French came. Huh? So take your choice. I mean, if you look at Africa, uh, you, you, what do you call those people? Well, they're not. I mean, are they immigrants? That's not the name that Africans use for them. They call them colonizers. Right? Yeah. And, of course, America at one time was a colony, right? Now, I, I'm going to leave it at that, but just so you get the flavor of what's going on in this text, Abraham would have been seen as an intruder, as an outsider, as an immigrant, as an alien. And because he did cattle, he moved around. But when his wife dies, he has to do what? He has to pay at an outrageous price, apparently, for the little piece to bury her in, right? And that, 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 that's the only piece he owns. 
He doesn't have land to help find his identity. And so the history of God's people for the first 600 plus years is one of their being immigrants. Now, I'm tempted to go off and tell stories about Italians and how they immigrated from Sicily and they brought the Costa Nostra with it, which I will leave in that language. And some of them were our neighbors in a little village called Garfield. And there were five million of them that came in the 20s and 30s, all right? All those nasty, ruffian Italians. And now the fourth generation has six, seven, eight, nine, ten doctors, three or four millionaires. Most of them are evangelical, Bible-carrying Christians. You, You realize that most of those people swimming across the border are evangelicals. No, the, Pentecostals are ev- the Pentecostals are evangelicals. And Pentecostalism is taking over South America. It's already taken over Africa, but it's taking over South America. And a lot of these people are coming, are immigrants. They're pro-life people swimming across the border. Now, I'm being naughty. I realize it, so I repent. <laughs> but not very seriously. <laughs> but, but you want to put Abraham into that box. He's an oddball. He doesn't fit. He's got some really weird ideas. One of the weirdest ones is he talks to this God that he calls Yahweh, and he says, he's the only real God. I mean, what nonsense, right? I mean, he's really the odd person out. How much time we got left? Not a whole lot of time, good. Uh, Let's read the text again, and let me parse it a little more closer. Look at chapter 12 and verse 2. This is the promise. He says, you you go and do this, and I will make of you a great nation. All right, we've worked on that, and we know what's involved in a nation. You've got to have land, you've got to have people, you've got to have some sense of how to coordinate this thing, some sort of rule, law, people who coordinate it. And I will bless you which we've looked at in the past. It's the opposite of curse. It means the communication of a concrete good so that in Genesis 26.3, Isaac in a time of famine is blessed and his crops grow. All right? Nobody else's crops were growing, but his were growing because he'd received a physical concrete blessing. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Now, just pause and think about that. Of all the names in the world, besides Jesus, what's the name that's probably most likely known all over the world? It's probably Abraham. I mean, we Christians claim it. We're all over the world. The Jews claim it. They're scattered. And the Muslims claim it. And they're everywhere, too. I mean, you'd be hard put to find a place where the name of Abraham is not known. I will make your name great. You will have an identity. And he says that I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. All right, so hold on to that. I will bless those who bless you. And when you read Genesis for next week, just watch. There are some people who bless Abraham. There are some people who curse Abraham. Watch what happens to them. Right? Right? I I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you or curses you, I will curse. 
And then he says, in you all of the families of the earth. My goodness. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I'd like to simplify this a bit and draw it this way. God says, all right, Abraham, I'm going to bless you concretely. And Abraham, you and your descendants are going to become a great nation with a great name. That's, that's my goal. But it doesn't stop there, does it? I mean, let me read the text to you again. Verse 2. And I will make your name great. Uh, sorry, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. All right? So this is how it works. Here's God. Here's blessing. Hmm? Go make your name great. Why? Look at the next line. So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. I'm quoting King James because that's what I know. And all of the families of the earth in you shall be blessed. So Abraham, you're going to become the means of bringing blessing to all of the families of the earth. If you said to me, why are you a missionary? I mean, I'm not a missionary anymore, I'm retired. But why were you a missionary? Well, you know, it's this kind of text that spoke to me. Now, I knew the Great Commission, uh, but it's, it's this sort of text that really has a lot of punch, that God blesses us as the people of God as a goal to make our name great, to make our nation great, to do things for us. But that goal then becomes the means to his more extended goal. And that extended goal is to bring blessing to all of the families of the earth. Now let that percolate in for a minute. Are you blessed? Oh, you say, no, 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 I I don't have a Cadillac. (laughs) I don't have a Mercedes. I don't have an electric car. Well, neither do I, but I'm blessed. If you think about it, you're blessed. Uh, I mean, because we're Americans, we tend to think in terms of economics. All right, fine enough. And some of us in this room have more money in our pockets than other people. Okay, And, and we are blessed. And even those of us who have less in our pockets, what we're having in our pockets is a blessing, and I'm glad to have it. But there are other blessings besides that, right? My wife has the blessing, the gift, to put it in New Testament terms, of cooking. I've added a new gift to the catalog here. And when you come to my house and you eat bunt cakes, man, you've never eaten cake before in your life. And if you come on the right day, you might actually get tiramisu. (laughs) Oh, now, you've got to be careful about tiramisu because at the bottom of the bowl is a little something that it says on the bowl, don't eat and drive. So you've you got to be careful about terrible zoos. You might wind up in the wrong place. But, but she has the gift. She has the blessing of eating. She has the blessing of hospitality. We have had thousands of students come through our home. 
You know, I didn't think about when I got married. I knew what I was marrying. I knew I was marrying a tough woman, and that's why I married her, because we were going into a tough situation. I mean, the fact that she was gorgeous and sexy and wonderful, I didn't know. I was a, co- a Bible college kid. We didn't know about those things. We knew that women needed to pray and to have long skirts and wear hose when they played tennis. <laughs> Can you? Yes. Can you imagine? She's a good tennis player. She has the gift of hospitality. We've had thousands of students. You know, when we were at John Brown, I said to my wife, I'd really like to have all my students over. She said, how many do you have this term? I had 500. Yeah, I had 250 in Old Testament, 200 in New Testament, and 50 in systematic theology. I had 500 students. And she said, fine, invite them over. So in groups of 25, it took us a year, every Friday night, they came and ate my cake and drank my juice and stamped on my carpet and wore out my house, and it was wonderful. She, had to get, she was blessed. Are you with me? She was blessed. And so she shared that blessing. And when we lived in Africa, every student who was in my class was invited to come have lunch on our lawn. When we lived in Asia, every student was invited to come to our house and have lunch in our patio. When we live here in you know, Indianapolis, if we can get up the courage and if we can stand straight up, we'll invite you over for a party because we, we like to have people and we like to interact with people. Dolores has the gift of hospitality. Other people have other gifts. There are a lot of different gifts, aren't there? And people are rich in music. People are, are rich in helps. People are, are rich in friendships, right? I mean, all of us have special gifting where we've been blessed by God. We've been blessed, what, to sit on it? I feel very sorry for my friends who have 10, 20, $30 million in their pockets, and they're sitting on it. And they ain't taking it with them. They're leaving it to their kids who already have too much money anyhow. Why not take that blessing and bless the ends of the earth? You know, I've been a missionary most of my life, and I can tell you that almost all the time that the work that missionaries are doing is done on a broken shoestring tied twice. Yep. And reused tea bags. We could have used more resources. We, we tried to do what we could with what we had. Uh, but we, you know, we, we never had very much. And now my students from NEGST have started some incredible projects. UCBC, the bilingual university that David Casali started, is now up to 1,000 students in the midst of a war-torn, diseased, ravaged area unlike almost anything else, Benny. Kato, I've been talking to Kato all week about how to raise some more money. He, he's been president of his denomination. He was president of his university that graduated his first medical class last week. He's retired from those. He's moved on. He started Jeremiah Center because in his area, six million people were killed in the last 30 years. 
and most of them were Christian. So they're trying to figure out what went wrong. And so he's been doing sociological, anthropological, and theological research to figure out what went wrong. He's doing it on a broken shoestring tied twice. Now I'm going to have to bite my tongue and just be quiet or I'll get myself in more trouble than I'm already in. But dear friends, you know, when missionaries come home, it, it breaks our hearts to see how money is spent. You know, I mean, really? Do you need to have that big a house? That big a car? Does your parking lot have to be paved every year? Well, people won't come to church unless the parking lot's paved. <laughs> All right, well, I've gone off to meddling, and I'm supposed to be teaching, so I will try to look back at the text and see what else I can do for you. Uh, in the notes, it says the, the promise is monistic. And now this is worth thinking about. If, if the problem here is monistic, you remember that term? Monistic is my term. I'm, I'm Humpty Dumpty. I make it say what I want to say, so don't go look it up in the dictionary. Over against dualistic. Dualistic is the world in which the physical and the spiritual are not only distinguishable, but separated. They don't interfere with each other. A monistic world knows the difference between eating a ham sandwich and praying. But those two worlds interact with each other. Why are people sick? Because they have evil spirits. Huh? If you went to the doctor and had a sore throat, and he went like this on a piece of paper, this is before computers. I mean, I realize it's passe. But in the old days, they used to write things down. And you pick it up and you take it off to the pharmacist, you realize that the pharmacist majored in handwriting analysis. <laughs> she did a minor course in chemistry, and she said, oh, the doctor says you have a sore throat. So far, so good. She can read it. I couldn't read it. Cast out one evil spirit. Huh, I'd get a different doctor or a different pharmacist, right? We don't believe that sickness is caused by evil spirits. If you live in Africa... That would be your first line of thought. Why is this person sick? There's an evil spirit bothering them. I suggest for you that this traditional world is not our world. This traditional world, the, the dualistic world is our world, but this traditional world is monistic and that the promise over here, which will in chapter 15 and 17 be called a covenant, but not yet, the promise has to be, if it's going to work, monistic. Are you with me? Yeah. If the disease is monistic, the cure has to be monistic. It's monistic in that there's a break in society, there's a break with God, there's a break in the environment. And so all of this has to be addressed in a proper, biblical, God-given way. And I suggest for you, that that's what this story is about. The story is about taking this seriously. Humans, us, are wicked. Do you own that? We're wicked. You say, me, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm also saved. <laughs> but I'm still wicked. Yeah. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death, but it doesn't abolish the law of sin and death. 
and as soon as I stop trusting the Spirit, what happens? I go down, right? I mean, that's the way I would take Romans 8 too. And, and so the, the wickedness is still there, at least at that point, later. So the promise is going to be monistic. The blessing has to be monistic. And so it, we need something that's going to put us right with God, right in society, and right with the environment. If it doesn't do all those, it ain't going to work. Are you with me? Now, much, much later, when, when we read together Jesus' opening salvo from the scriptures, Isaiah 61, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, sounds pretty monistic, to preach to you good news. And then when you read the rest of that verse, it talks about being people being released from prison and all kinds of things that sound quite physical. Now, there are spiritual parts in that, too. But it, to me, it sounds like, having taken this point of view, that it's a monistic sort of thing. And, and I will read Jesus in light of, of his world and this story. And so I come... I, you, you, I would just want to tell you where we're going with this, so you may want to get off the train, huh? Yeah, well, there'll be a lot of stops along the way. So I, I read that as, as monistic, all right? Now, in your notes, let me pick up a couple of these other things that are there so I won't have to come back and pick them up again. 3-1, uh, the terms promise, covenant, oath, and their centrality. Uh, we're going to get to the words um, covenant, which is a key term, and oath, which is also a key term, but a little less. Oaths are usually in connection with covenant. But up here, uh, the, the rather bland word davar, which simply means word, is translated in most translations, promise or something like that. I would make a simple distinction, which, but it helps me, is that covenant is the form in which a promise is given. The covenant is the form, the literary form, like a poem, in which the promise is given. The promise is the content. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. That's all content. When they get to chapters 15 and 17, they're going to have a covenant. And in one of them, they actually have a covenant ceremony where they cut up an animal and all kinds of things happen that we find very strange. But it's a, it's a, Barith is a covenant ceremony where people come to an agreement. And, and I would suggest that covenant is not content, nor is oath content, but they are the way that the content of the promise is packaged in, in a literary sort of way. So I, I will follow those. That's why, I, if I'm giving this a big title, I would not say covenant. I have half a dozen books on my shelf that talk about the covenant. Well, okay, but I think that misses the point a little bit. What really counts is what does the covenant say? What is the promise? What's the story about? Saying covenant doesn't really get me very far. All right? So I, I yeah, will use the word covenant because the Bible uses the word covenant, but I'm just suggesting that covenant has that other sense. Also, the promise is programmatic. Now, I've talked a bit about that. And if you say to me, how do you know that? Well, the footnote says so. <laughs> Thank you. It tells me, oh, it's 12 o'clock. 
Time just stopped. 30 seconds. Sorry. It's programmatic. You know that because of its literary location. It's at the head of chapter 12, which is clearly a break. It is repeated, and we'll come to that. Often, all the way through the Old Testament, well into the New Testament, we're going to hear it in the book of Acts. Keep your heads open, eyes open, you'll see it in the book of Acts. It's, it's at the literary crux point, it's repeated, and it has a program. It's not just something minor. I'm going to make of you a great nation. That sounds like a real program, doesn't it? Sounds like the sort of thing a politician might latch onto. Yeah, it's got a program to it, so it's programmatic. Amen, I'll see you next week, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>